morning to you. Our society loves its liberty. Here in New York, we have a massive statue devoted to it, Lady Liberty. In Philly, we have a 2,000-pound bell in commemoration of it, the Liberty Bell. One of our nation's founding fathers, the patriot Patrick Henry, famously thundered, give me liberty or give me death. Now, just as our culture values liberty, so too it is true that Christians value liberty as well. One of the largest Christian colleges in our country by total enrollment is named Liberty University. For liberty is a hallmark of biblical Christianity. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. That is, we're saved by God's unmerited favor, and we cannot earn it. It is something that we receive, not something that we can merit. We are not saved by our own works. And and since that is true, that means we are not shackled to religious rule-keeping. We don't get made righteous by that, nor do we hold on to our righteousness permanently through that. Uh, Since Christ Jesus fulfilled the law by putting our faith in Christ Jesus, Christ is now our righteousness before God. We sang about that this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the great exchange that's mentioned in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 says, For the law of Moses thou shalt not. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our human nature. When Jesus defines the immensity of what it is to keep the perfect law of God, we all say, but I cannot. So the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. The Bible says He sent His own Son in a body, in the incarnation, like the bodies we sinners have, except He, tempted in all points, did not sin. The Bible says in Romans 8 that in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. And He did this so the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us. You see, Christ's sinless life, His substitutionary death, and His victorious resurrection provides liberty for each of us who otherwise would only know captivity. Amen? Okay. So Galatians 5.1 puts it plain and clear and bold and straight. And it is this, and hear this, Because some people have the conception that Christianity is something different than liberty, and they are mistaken. The Bible says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, of religious rule-keeping. So you need to understand that Christians enjoy immense liberty. We are free, friends, to do anything that is not sin. We're free to do anything that is not sin. And that leaves you a lot of options every moment of every day. Uh, The Christian's liberty is not limited by, by some scrupulous adherence to ceremonial law nor is it shackled to some other saint who hymns and haws. Did you hear that? There are Pharisees among us, and you're afraid of them. Was Jesus? He was not. And yet our great and gracious God, who secured our liberty through the shedding of His blood at Calvary, is a God who is love. 
God is not just loving. The Bible says God is love. You see, God existed eternally in Trinity. That means God existed eternally in a perfect love relationship with each of the persons within the Trinity. God the Father perfectly loved God the Son. God the Son perfectly loved God the Spirit. God the Spirit perfectly loved God the Father. And so on and so forth. And so then, in love, God increased the objects of His love. What was eternally only three in perfect unity and loving relationships. See, if you had a God who was just one, and that was it, you couldn't have a God who is love. Because there was no one to love. But He is one in three, and so He can perfectly love. And Allah's God cannot, can He? Because there would be nothing to love. In fact, that's why that God says just submit. And there is submission because He's God, but you do it out of love. And so God, in His love, He said, I'm going to make my love increase. I want to increase the objects of my love. And so He created everything that is, and that was, and that ever will be. And so in love, He created the angels to enjoy His glory and enjoy performing His perfect will. And in love, God created us, man and woman. And He gave us to one another that we could love one another. But then sin entered in. By humanity's foolish decision, God didn't do it, we chose it. We chose not to love God by not obeying His good commandments. And sin immediately brought brokenness, the Bible teaches. It brought brokenness vertically in our relationship between ourselves and a holy God. It brought brokenness horizontally between one another, between Adam and Eve and and creation and creature and everything in that situation. And if only there was something that could cross across the brokenness. And indeed there is. The Bible says all of creation groans under this great brokenness. Thank God that the Gospel declares that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Thank God that God repaired what we broke through sin. So keeping this in mind that our God is a God of love, Today, and for the next several Sundays, we are in a tricky text that often trips people up. It is a text that raises many questions, and we'll raise them today, we'll answer them over the next few Sundays. It raises questions like, now wait a minute, biblically speaking, what's this thing called our conscience that the passage mentions? And is the conscience an accurate reflection of biblical realities in all cases? Because I've met Christians who differ in matters of Uh, Why is our conscience invaluable if it is not infallible? Why is it important we don't cause another brother to violate their conscience? And and this line of thinking leads to a whole other set of questions. Questions like, what is a weaker brother? Is it someone who has a strong opinion? Or is it something different? Here's another question. Am I required to live in submission to some other Christian who demands we all bow in deference to their personal preference? Do the Pharisees win again and again? Does the loudest get the victory? Here's a question. Is the weaker brother a trump card you can throw down so that a certain saint always gets their way? while the rest of us has to cower under their great restriction? The main question this passage asks pertains to this. How are we supposed to use our Christian liberty? How are we supposed to use our Christian liberty? And the answer of Scripture can be summed up in four words. Now, if you're looking at your bulletin and and, and the wall, you're going to see that the bulletin and the sermon notes, and go back, and that all say something different. Here's what I intend to say. (laughs) The four words I want you to know over these few Sundays are this. Liberty lived in love. How are we to use our liberty? What's the biblical way to exercise our liberty? It's four words. It's liberty lived in love. Now you say it once. Liberty. 
All right, now please turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 8. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please use one of ours. You reach out, you grab a Blue Pew Bible. I believe if you turn to page 1216, you'll find 1 Corinthians 8. As we turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 8, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in this text. Let's pray. Father, You wrote this Scripture, this issue of uh, of meat sacrificed to idols and, and, and the rights that we enjoy. And it's going to go from chapter 8 to chapter 9 to chapter 10. And, and in some ways, it seems so far from us. Uh, we don't really fight in our churches about meat sacrificed to idols. We fought about many things. The color of the curtains. And uh, whether we should have two lampshades or three in a certain room. We, we fight over silly things. But, boy, this isn't one of those things. And yet, there is a timeless truth and an interculturally relevant principle, an eternally relevant principle, in this question that seems so foreign, and yet it comes up so often. May we see the reality of what you're teaching in this particular query the Corinthians asked. May we see that in matters of liberty, it is essential that we have liberty lived in love. May this become clear. May we not be under the thumb of someone who thinks they're stronger, but then claims that they're weaker so that others have to cower. And may we, when we are more informed and see our liberty, not cause the legitimate weaker brother to sear their conscience and stumble into the gutter because they have yet to see their liberty from Scripture. Please, in these three Sundays, would your word go forth with power and clarity and precision that we would get the message and walk in the truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. All right, so the word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. This is the second question the Corinthians are bringing up. Here's the new now concerning. Now concerning the question of food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on the earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, little l, and yet for us there is one God, big G, the Father, capital F, for whom all things are and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. That is, some saints, new Christians, were confused. But some, through former association with idols, they eat food as it is offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Not to anyone, just to the weak and what the Bible means by that. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged to do the same? If his conscience is weak, that he would eat the food offered to idols. And so, by your knowledge, your right understanding that you have liberty here, this weak person, that new Christian who doesn't understand he has liberty here, is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, and when you do that, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's going to go on in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and go deeper into this argument. We're just going to be in chapter 8 today. 
We've been journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and most Christians think that it's a jumbled mess of different questions, but it actually has a very simple structure. The structure is this. The first six chapters of the book deal with concerns brought from the house church of Chloe's people who say the church is messed up in unity, and they're suing each other, and there's sexual promiscuity, and and so Paul in six chapters deals with those things. And then in chapters 7 through 16, now concerning a series of questions the congregation has brought to the Apostle Paul, the founder of their church, and says, we're having questions about these matters, Would you help us? Every time a new question is given between chapters 7 and 16, the Bible will always tell us, Paul will always tell us, now concerning. That's the next question. We saw this in our previous chapter, in chapter 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And the first question was, must I be lonely in order to be holy? In a sex-soaked society in ancient Corinthian culture, the Christians wondered, was celibacy with one another the only way to intimacy with God? We spent several Sundays looking at that question. And so Paul answered that single question to every group that was uh, impacted by implication. He, he answered it for marrieds, both those equally and unequally yoked. He then answered it for singles, and he answered it for widows, and he answered it for the engaged. And now we're in chapter 8, and there is a new question. And the new question is this. Now concerning, what is it? Food offered to idols. Your mic's not on. I couldn't hear anyone. You with me? Okay, we'll try this again. When we get interactive, just let me know we haven't died. This has been a partial rapture. Now concerning food offered to idols. This question seems super weird to modern ears, doesn't it? Uh, But it was a burning question for the Corinthians because you need to understand the way the Greco-Roman world worked because that's the world they lived in every moment of every day. Uh, Meat was a treat that many could not afford to eat. The basic diet of a Corinthian was porridge in the morning and bread made of wheat if you were wealthy and barley if you weren't. That was what you ate. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay? Um, now this porridge and, and, and bread was supplemented, it was augmented depending on how wealthy you were, with, with olives, with wine, with perhaps some fish as a relish. But meat was usually only available on holidays, which really comes from the word holy days, holy days in their society, or at special civic festivals, which usually had a religious undertaking in some way, shape, or form. And so, if, if you were in ancient Corinth, and you were going to eat meat, you went to the butcher, which would be the market, and you went to the marketplace to buy the meat that was on sale, it almost certainly had a connection to idol worship. You see, the pagans offered all these sacrifices to all these different gods, little g. And what you would do is you would bring an animal for sacrifice, and the priest would kill it, and they would take out the best parts, which were all the innards, right? And that would be offered to the god. And then the priests were given a portion of the offering to cover their expenses to keep the temple open. And then the rest was sold at the marketplace and got back into the temple treasury. So if you went to buy meat in the market, it almost certainly came from where? from an idol that it was sacrificed to. Now, there was an exception to this. If, if you could afford meat, and most saints couldn't, and you could find a kosher butcher, a Jewish butcher, that was your only sure bet this wasn't ever offered to an idol. But that was very hard to find, and it was pretty much unaffordable to most. So in ancient Corinth, you had a problem if you were going to eat meat. Now, maybe you go, no problem, I'll just not eat meat. Well, if you're going to participate in the civic life of the day, you're going to be invited to stuff. You're going to be invited to civic events. You're going to be invited to people's homes. And and civic events tended to be tied, at least tangentially, to some kind of religious deity. You see, the religious culture of ancient Corinth was simultaneously and inseparably the city's civic culture. The two went like this. You couldn't have one without the other. To disengage from one was to withdraw from all serious social, political, and financial dealings with others in that city. It would be like if you lived in the Muslim world, and and you were a missionary, and, and, and you would refuse to share a meal invited after sunset at Ramadan, come to my house. That would be pretty hard to build bridges to people for Jesus, wouldn't it? 
It would be like if you were a secularist and you were invited to a wedding at a church and you didn't go to the wedding because it was at a church. You see how that would cause all kinds of knock-on relational problems? And and so if you were going to participate in social life, meat sacrificed to idols was going to be a problem that kept coming up every day. In fact, even if you said, well, let's eat at your house, great. They would then put out the best they had. They might eat bread and porridge every day, but when you have company, you put out the good stuff, right? And so meat would be on offer. It would be a treat because you're an honored, valued guest. And it would be a great insult to refuse it in the host's home. And almost certainly, where were those meats coming from? The market. Where they come from? From the idol worship. Do you see the problem? You see how there's really no way around this problem unless you're going to be an utter social, civic, religious hermit. Now, got even harder. Many people did not invite you to their small home to eat. They invited you to a restaurant. The only problem was there weren't any restaurants. So they invited you where there was meat and there were rooms to eat. And so most temples had rooms off to the side where the meat was already there and you could basically eat at a restaurant. I want you to take a look at this next slide. This next slide right here. And this is a diagram of the Escalapon of Corinth. It was a healing temple. It is indicative of many other temples we found in ancient Corinth. And do you see the yellow? Where the yellows are, are the dining rooms. So you have the temple, and behind the temple is the rest of the place. Have you ever gone to like the Greek Orthodox Church to go to something, and and you weren't going there for service, you were going there because somebody was having something in the civic hall, the church hall? Okay, well that's kind of like this. You have your temple, and in the back is the hall, and what they would have is multiple dining rooms. they got all this meat. Why not just cook it here and make the profit right here instead of send it to the market, right? And so this was Applebee's. Right? Okay. And and, and so when people invited you to a business lunch, you were going to a temple, weren't you? Okay. So, even if you wanted to have a family banquet, even if you wanted to have a wedding banquet, where would you hold it? Well, there wasn't Hanover Manor. There was Apollo's temple and a dining room attached. So certain saints particularly those who are really interested in evangelizing lost people, their pagan friends, uh, people who had significant business interests, interests and they needed to have a business lunch, they were constantly invited to temples or homes where meat had been sacrificed to idols almost certainly previously. So the saints in Corinth had a conundrum. Can a Christian eat meat that was potentially, I don't know what it was, or actually, I definitely know what it was, offered to an idol? And there were two positions in the church. They did not agree. And they were mutually exclusive. There were those who were a little bit better grounded in the Word of God, and they said, hey, there's no God but one. An idol is nothing. It's just wood and stone. So, I can eat whatever I want, wherever I want, because I understand this has no religious connection for me. Now, behind the idol, Paul is going to tell us in chapter 10 that there's often a demonic entity masquerading as a deity, but none of those things were gods in any sense. Indeed, chapter 8 makes that clear. These are so-called gods, the Bible says. They are pretenders, not actual contenders. So look at the Scriptures again. For we know that an idol has no real existence. That's what the stronger brother was saying, and he was right. And that there is no God but one, and the stronger brother was saying that, and he was right. Then Paul says, the Father, for whom all things, and from whom we exist, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So he's, he's saying what you're understanding there is biblically true. The idols are nothing. But there were these other saints in the church in Corinth, and they were saved out of paganism. They had used to go to these temples to worship, not just to have a business lunch. They went there to make the gods happy, and so they ate the offerings in worship to these false gods. 
And, and so these, these newly saved saints, or these highly sensitive saints who haven't been well discipled yet, their, their pagan past lingered longer and loomed large in their minds. It takes time for the Word of God to liberate what the enemy used to captivate. Amen? So for these saints, going to the temple was an act of worship to the very entities they have now renounced in following Jesus. And so, eating meat that was once offered to idols seemed to be part and parcel with worshiping these demonic entities masquerading as so-called gods. And and, and since these new Christians didn't really understand their their freedoms in Christ, and and since they then looked over and they saw these other brothers who'd been Christians longer, and, and they saw them eating in the temple... The less discipled brothers were misunderstanding what was going on. And they were wondering, gosh, you know, I was at church on Sunday and I saw this guy and he, he's, been a, he's, a, he's a pillar of the church and he really understands all about the Word of God and I saw him in Apollo's temple eating. And so maybe as a Christian, I need to make Apollo happy and Jesus. I saw him at Aphrodite's temple. And, and maybe I need to make Aphrodite happy. Uh, you know, I'm going on a journey by the sea, and, and right here in Corinth is the seaport in Poseidon's temple. I probably should have you know, a snack at the temple before I go so Poseidon makes it okay when I travel. Maybe you're going to Africa, and if so, well, I have good news for you because in Corinth, the Egyptian god Isis keeps a temple in Corinth, so if you're going there, maybe you should stop there first. I'm putting in new crops this year, and I'm not sure how they're going to do, so maybe I should go back to Demeter's temple. That's the god of fertility in my vicinity. Maybe, you know, you're hoping that you know, there isn't Christian mingle, so maybe you should go to uh, Venus's temple and see if you can get a little help with love. Have a sandwich in Venus's temple and see if maybe you might find that other person. Maybe you need some good fortune. And there was a god called Fortuna. And guess what they were into? Giving you good fortune. So go have a sandwich there. The city of Corinth was utterly awash with many so-called gods. The the representations of these gods were ubiquitous. You couldn't get away from them. It it surrounded everyone, everywhere one went. Uh, These gods were on buildings. They were in the marketplace. They were in little deities on the shelf of people's homes. They were at civic events. They were within government policies, would be be given in the name of various gods. Uh, They were alongside virtually every social function. Idolatry was part of the warp and woof of Greco-Roman life. And the Christian found this an incredible challenge to navigate. Now, other brothers found this less challenging. They rightly remembered, an idol's nothing, because Jesus is everything. The stronger, sturdier, more well-discipled saints said, I can partake in this sandwich. There's utterly no connection in my heart to any kind of idolatry in this moment. It's merely me to eat, and so I'm going to. It was never in any way in that sturdier, stronger saint's heart Any kind of statement meaning that I believe in this deity, I believe that it's real, but rather it was a statement, I'm not going to isolate myself from all these other people that are inviting me to business functions and weddings and their homes. Do you see the conflict? Very important you see the conflict, as most Christians get this passage, I don't know anybody that struggles with this. When you start understanding what they're struggling with, you're going to start understanding that the implication and application in modern situations is endless even if meat sacrificed to idols is not exactly our situation today. Those sturdier saints says, I don't intend to isolate myself from society. I don't intend to curtail my liberty. And so to those saints, Paul offers this very simple lesson. Let our liberty be lived in love. That is the guideline for the Christian standing on the sideline wondering which position to get behind. The position of the Christian is let my liberty be lived in love. Sadly in this, both sides of the congregation were amiss. The weaker conscience brother was wrong in limiting his liberty needlessly and then in judging his brother accordingly. And the more biblically knowledgeable saint, those who the Bible calls the stronger brother, he was equally wrong 
because he partook in his liberty with no regard for how his weaker brother might be destroyed by the confusion of the weaker brother's wrong conclusion. Each side needed to do this. Each side needed to learn liberty lived in love. There's an old Buffalo Springfield song. Battle lines were being drawn. Nobody's right. Everybody's wrong. Have that earworm all Sunday. Congratulations. So over these next two Sundays, we're going to endeavor to discover seven principles for when we butt up against disputable matters. Places where theologically we have liberty. And in our exercising of our liberty, we still need sensitivity and indeed charity when around those who yet to understand the freedom with biblical clarity. Which brings us to our first point today. Liberty lived in love understands that we have tremendous freedoms in Christ. Liberty lived in love understands we have tremendous freedoms in Christ. I don't know who my hidden Pharisees are, so I'm going to make you say it together. Liberty lived in love understands that we have tremendous freedoms in Christ. The truth of the matter regarding meat sacrifice to idols was this, and it's verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on the earth, and indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, little l, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, big L, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and through whom we exist. Friends, we have tremendous freedoms in Christ. Idols are nothing. And you know what nothing is? It's literally no thing. That's how no thing they are. They're nothing. Now, both Testaments clearly teach this. You can't miss it in the Bible. Uh, write in your Bible Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. The Bible says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So who all who trust in them. That's the Bible throwing pretty sharp irony. You see, idols are mute. And they're what folks used to call dumb. And those who make idols, and those who trust in idols, the Bible says they are dumb as well. For they ascribe to wood and stone that they have shaped as though that thing of wood and stone reality can somehow be reshaped. Ludicrous. Now what David in the Old Testament puts across so clearly the Apostle Paul stood up and preached fearlessly in front of a bunch of people who thought the idols were real. In the book of Acts, in Acts 19.26, write 19.26, Acts 19.26 in your Bible. The Bible says in Acts 19.26, the Apostle Paul says this, gods made with hands are no gods at all. You see, idols are nothing. They're no thing. But there are some saints whose consciences are weak because they have not yet been fully informed in the Scriptures. They haven't been well discipled on this issue just yet. And that asks the question, alright, well biblically what is our conscience? Their conscience is weak. What is a conscience? And the word conscience literally means to know with. It takes the Latin prefix con, with, and the root sire, to know, and you end up with to know with. The word conscience is used about 32 times in our New Testaments. And so biblically, what is our conscience? Well, it's kind of like this. Biblically, our conscience is the internal court of our heart where our actions and our intentions are judged as either morally approved or morally condemned. Make sense? 
Romans 2.15 tells us that to a certain extent, the law of God is written on our hearts. And what it's referring to there is the conscience of man. Because our conscience bears a kind of witness in regards to the rightness or wrongness of a situation or an action. Now, Scripture is clear that our conscience is not infallible. You can't listen to your conscience over the Word of God. The Word of God is correct. Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians 4.4, you might write that in your bullets in 1 Corinthians 4.4, that even though his conscience was clear on the matter back in chapter 4, it didn't make him innocent in the sight of God. Why? Because our conscience isn't infallible. It just meant he was unaware internally of being untoward in the eyes of God. You see, the Bible teaches that God is the final arbiter of truth. And indeed, Jesus, who is truth, will judge us by His perfect truth, by His perfect righteousness, because He has all of the evidence and He always weighs it perfectly. And that's why you have to listen to Jesus on what is true, even if your conscience says this is fine. And yet our conscience has a place. Not to replace Scripture, but to use if we don't yet know enough Scripture. Our our conscience is sort of like a God-given moral compass. But a compass points to magnetic north. It doesn't point to true north. A compass points north-ish. And if you're lost, north-ish is a lot better than being totally clueless. But the Bible points us to true north. Our compasses get us in the vicinity. Your compass might go a little bit left. Mine might go a little bit right. It's possible we can break our compass and spin around in the darkness of night. But the Bible alone always points to true north. Because God's Word comes from God. And it's impossible for God to lie This is why when we feel like we're fine, but the Scripture says, no, 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 Sean, you're out of line. We cannot have a Jiminy Cricket theology. It is very dangerous to let your conscience be your guide if the Word of God says don't. We live in an age where we each think we're the arbiter of truth. And we can't be true because we each have different truths. And the truth is mutually exclusive. It can't be all things to all people in all ways at the same time. North is north, north isn't south. Right? Equally, did you know if I set a magnet on a compass, what will happen to it? You put a magnet on a compass, it goes all cattywampus. The compass gets confused. And the Bible says sin can do the same thing to our conscience. We can sear our conscience. That's just what happened to the false teachers in 1 Timothy 4.2. You can write that in your bulletins as well, 1 Timothy 4.2. The Bible says even these false teachers seared their conscience. They they knew what the Scripture said, and they, they went in their own way instead. The Bible says, for although they knew the Word, they twisted it to their own ends. And that has a response. The response is, and now their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron, making them no longer full, pull, pull the full, uh, feel the pull of their conscience back. If I were to sear your skin with a hot iron, you would have no more sensitivity. You could run your finger over it and feel nothing. And there are people that can do certain sins that have so seared their conscience that without God making them have a new heart, they feel Now, if you're really good at that, we call you a sociopath. And if you're only marginally good at that, we call you a politician. But anyway, so um, one day I'm going to get in trouble. I've got to move to Africa. Okay, so uh, some can sin with impunity and yet still feel they've done their moral duty. So broken is the moral compass within some of us. In our passage, we are warned in verse 12 that we can wound another brother's conscience, and that is bad. That is dangerous. That is unchristlike. That is sin. How do we do this? We do this by getting that other brother who does not yet understand he has freedom to do something before he understands from the Word of God he has that freedom. So, what's he going to do? 
he's going to violate the only thing he had, his conscience. Now, friends, you need to understand you can always disciple, but you should never tempt. And the time to disciple is in your small group and in your pulpit and in your Bible study and with your friend. And at the moment when that person doesn't get it and you take them with you to where they think they ought not be, you're not discipling, you're you're tempting. So that is, until a saint biblically understands their legitimate freedom, and we have freedom to do anything the Bible says isn't sin, don't tempt them to violate their conscience. We're going to speak more on this in later points in later Sundays. But for now, what we need to know is that liberty lived in love understands that we have tremendous freedoms in Christ. What kind of freedoms? Well, I'm glad you asked. We have freedom to partake of anything that is not specifically sinful. But we need to remember that just because something isn't specifically sinful in a certain situation, it might not be helpful. Indeed, it might not be beneficial. We may be free to indulge in many things, but we must not be mastered by anything because we already have a master, don't we? Jesus Christ. And that brings us to point two today. Point two today. Liberty lived in love understands that non-sins are not sins. Therefore, our participation or rejection of these situations does not commend us to God and does not defile us before God. Let's say that one more time. Listen again. Liberty lived in love understands that non-sins are not sin. So we can't tell people that that's sin. Therefore, our participation or rejection of these situations does not make God love us more and does not make God love us less. It doesn't commend us before God. It doesn't defile us before God. You've heard the the quote, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, and I don't go with girls that do. That's the understanding that because I do that, I'm better than you. Right? That's a problem in this passage. That's why there's some churches that don't preach on this passage. They misquote a verse about the weaker brother, and it's always the guy who's been a Christian for 50 years and has an opinion. And we'll quote you a hundred verses. Doesn't seem like the guy who doesn't know the Scriptures, does it? Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. Food is morally neutral. Gluttony isn't. Alcohol is morally neutral. Drunkenness isn't. Sex is morally neutral. Within the context of the marriage bed, it's wonderful and beautiful. But sexual immorality isn't morally neutral. Sexual immorality is corrosive and destructive even as much as it is seductive and persuasive. So friends, sin is whatever God says is sin. It is not what we decide is sin for us, sin for me, sin for our day. Sin is whatever God says is sin. So what does that mean? Well, that means that gambling may not be wise. But buying a lottery ticket isn't a one-way ticket to Sinville. But I've heard preachers say that. Usually with a lot of unction. Be careful when unction is larger than Scripture. It might be rhetoric, not logic, that's leading you that day. That means dancing may not be your thing. I really can't dance very well. But places that employ exotic dancers are not an okay thing. Dancing in general isn't a sin. David danced before the Lord in Psalm 30. The Bible praises David for dancing. In Psalm 30 and verse 11, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy and my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. Now, some saints back in the day used to quote, misquote Ephesians 2.2 regarding Satan. The Bible says Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And there were certain saints who used to say listening to the radio was sinful on the basis of that verse because we'd hear it on the airwaves. Of course, Christian radio has strengthened the faith of millions of Christians. And it is the prime way to share the gospel in the past, to penetrate the Iron Curtain. Today, it is sharing the gospel in places where we can't get preachers in the Muslim world. But there were Christians who one time told you that the radio was evil. 
There are Christians who think that if I take light and I shine it through solenoid, somehow in that movement, sin has occurred, if you look at it. Those saints said seeing a movie, particularly going to the movies. Oddly enough, seeing the movie in your home or in the church fellowship hall, totally fine. Seeing it at a theater, that's when. But friends, I'm going to tell you, film is neutral. The passage says that food isn't good or bad. What you do with food can be good or bad. And so since film is neutral, what we do with a film is not. Some use film to twist minds. Some use film to redeem them. Film is neutral. In 1979, the Jesus film, shown in 250 theaters, and today the Jesus film has been translated into over 1,500 languages. It has been seen, I'm told, by some 8 billion people, with over 500 million of them indicating decisions to follow Jesus Christ. Friends, Liberty Lived in Love understands that non-sins are not sin. Therefore, our participation or rejection in these situations does not commend us to God, nor does it defile us before God. Furthermore, both testaments are a testament that saints must not add to the Word of God. Their own list of supposed sins. Shibboleths. Deuteronomy 4 says this, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I have commanded you, nor should you take from it, that you may keep the commandments of God, not man, that I have commanded you. Moses repeats this warning eight chapters later in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. There's a certain kind of Christian that wants a smaller Bible. There's a certain kind of Christian that has a larger Bible. And the only Bible for the Christian is the one God gave you. In the very last book of the Bible, the Apostle John closes his great revelation with the following injunction to the Christian about never, 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 never altering the Word of God. Revelation 22.18 declares, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Now, it's been my experience that most saints don't add to the Bible in an attempt to ruin it. I don't believe that's why most Christians do that. They add to the Bible in an attempt to preserve it. They add to the Bible in an attempt to preserve the Bible so we don't overstep it. Uh, But, you know, God wisely puts a fence around sexual immorality. He wants to keep sex within the realm He's intended, the marriage bed, pure and undefiled. So then some saint says, well, sexual immorality is bad. Co-ed bathing. They're both in bathing suits. They're going to see things that, you know, they're not married. And we're going to say you can't have, they used to call it mixed bathing, co-ed bathing. And you can't go to the water park together as the youth group because boys and girls would be in swimsuits, even if they were in like full burqa fundamentalist swimming attire. (laughs) Another brother says, well, right you are, brother. No co-ed bathing. Let's add that to the list. Here's another good one. You know the way these kids dance around here is pretty doggone unholy. Usually how it's pronounced in my experience. So let's put up another fence, shall we? Put up a fence around dancing. And pretty soon, our fences are taller than God's fences. And we begin to confuse our rules with God's rules. And such becomes the case that has turned into an old joke. Why are fundamentalists against premarital sex? Because it can lead to dancing. Adding fences where God gives freedom is no joke, according to the Word of God. 
It will cause us to choke on man-made tradition, and if we are not careful, we will nullify the Word of God. And that's just what happened in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus says this. Mark chapter 7 says to the Pharisees, you leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. And He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles his mother or father must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban. That is, instead of taking care of you in your old age, I gave it to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother and father when God said you're supposed to. Verse 13, Jesus says this, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and you do many things such as this. Once you build fences, you will build a lot of fences. Hey, once you start taking away from the Word of God, you're going to find a lot of places you'd like to take away. More places. But the Christian submits to the Word of God. He yields to the Word of God. He listens to the Word of God. He believes the Word of God. He's not just a hearer. He's a doer. What the Pharisees did repeatedly, we'd be very well advised to avoid entirely. We want to be sure that our liberty is lived in love, that other brothers are not crushed by the exercise of our legitimate liberties, and that we don't put up extra-biblical fences and then start keeping score of people who dare scale them. And so to those ends, let's pray today. Amen? Heavenly Father, May Calvary Church never abandon the commandments of God for the traditions of men. May we understand that we have tremendous freedoms in Christ. May we understand that non-sins are not sin, and therefore our participation or rejection of these situations does not commend us to God, nor does it defile us before God. Help us in our next Sundays together in Scripture that we may begin to better understand that our liberties ought to be enjoyed, but always in love. That sometimes we might need to temper our legitimate Christian liberties because of our love for our weaker brother. May these few Sundays together make us a people who enjoy liberty lived in love. We ask that You would clarify to us wherever we've become confused in this. Exhort us where we have become calloused in this. Encourage us where we are timid in this. And train us where we are weak or deficient in this. Lord, we want to glorify You in our liberty and in our love. For You gave us our liberty. You set us as captives free. And You lavished upon us Your love. In Christ. Amen.